0: Before we get into the message tonight, let me give you a couple of quick announcements. Um, First of all, did we we jump ahead? Are we good? Uh, No? Okay. Yep. Baptism event. Maybe that's the first one. We'll go with that. Saturday, March 6th. That's in two weeks at 10 a.m. at our home out in Alva. Uh, And if you're being baptized, obviously we want you to be there. Uh, But we want to send an invite out to everybody in our church. We want to celebrate all the folks who are being baptized. And so we want to be there as a church as much as we can. Um, So if you're in a small group with people, certainly come and celebrate with them. We've got some kids from our youth group that are going to be baptized. Come and celebrate with them. We've got a young lady from our children's ministry being baptized. Come and celebrate with them. I don't know how many baptisms we're going to have. It could be anywhere from 5 to 6 to 12 to 15. It really could range because we're just praying and asking and seeking. Next week we'll talk about it in more detail, but I want to plant that seed March 6, two weeks, 10 a.m. out in the Alva. It'll be a fun morning. We'll have brunch and all that kind of good stuff child dedication. Uh, We do this once a year, maybe twice a year. We had a lot of babies last year, and we never got to dedicate any of these babies. And so as a young church, um, lots of new babies, and we want to dedicate those children to the Lord and also commit to being a church that will come around the parents and be a part of raising those kids to know Jesus. And so we're going to dedicate, we're going to set apart some kids on March the 27th and their families. And so if you have a child it's not just baby, it's child dedication. If you have a child that you've never said, hey, I want to commit this child's life to the Lord, I want to commit to raising this child to know Christ, um, you to see Karina, who is the leader of our children's ministry, and if you don't know who that is, then see me, and I will get you in touch with her. Is that the kid screaming back there? Okay. Uh, there was a shooting in our parking lot last Saturday night, (laughs) and so I'm a little more fearful of what's happening around, but it was a party that was happening next door. They had security. It was like 2 a.m. Nothing good happens after midnight. Kids, remember that. Don't ever stay out past midnight, but there was a shooting in our parking lot. He didn't die, Um, but I wanted to make you aware of that, and also just I'm a little more aware of like what's happening around here tonight. Uh, Ladies' Bible study. It started up this past Wednesday night. We have several groups, but I just want to mention this one. They started up this past Wednesday night as a new group they decided upon a book to study it's not supposed to be this way is the name of the book uh, and they're going to study that every Wednesday night from 6 to seven thirty until they get through that book and then they'll go to another book and so on and so forth so if you are a lady and you would like to be a part of that that's in this space six o'clock on Wednesday nights. Last but not this is the last one. Last but not least, this is uh, the refuge food pantry. We're constantly stocking it. We're constantly giving stuff away. In our recovery groups, a lot of those folks will take the food out of there. A lot of our youth groups, some of the kids will take the food with them, and so we need to constantly be replenishing it. Uh, just to encourage you to every time you go to the grocery to pick something up and bring it with you on Saturday night and put it in the pantry. We're having a theme every month, and so the theme this month is um, I don't remember what they called it. Where, Sue Ann? Perfect Perfect pear. I knew it was peanut butter and jelly, mac and cheese tuna and crackers, flour and sugar, so perfect pairs. And so to give you a theme, when you go to the grocery, pick up some of those items, bring it in, and help us stock the pantry. Uh, And if you get a chance, check out our Facebook group page. Uh, Sue Ann had a really cool post from last night. I won't share the story here now, but she had a really cool post last night. I just wanted to um, encourage everybody to check that out because good things are happening uh, when we trust and serve the Lord. Okay, tonight... I'm gonna do a little teaching and then I'm gonna do a little preaching. You might like the teaching, you might like the preaching, I don't know, but we're gonna start with the teaching. I'm just gonna teach you guys a little bit about the Bible. First of all, the Bible is one big story, okay? The hero of that story, his name is Jesus. Jesus came. So he could save us. We were the ones that needed rescue. We were the ones needing saved. Because at the beginning of that big story, we decided to be our own masters. And we call that sin. All of the problems in the world, all of the problems in our life come from sin. All the misery that we see, it comes from sin. There would be no injustice if there were no sin. There would be no death if there were no sin. The results of sin impacts every single part of our lives. I've got a graphic here. There's four concentric circles, and they're the results of sin. And so if you start in the middle of that circle, do we have that graphic by chance? <laughs> there it is. If you start in the middle of that circle, it's spiritual brokenness. If we read the beginning of the story, Adam and Eve, after they ate the fruit, they knew they disobeyed God, it says they hid from God. They hid from God because their spiritual alienation separation from God. We were meant to be in relationship with our Creator. And without that relationship, then everything outside of that center circle gets messed up. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, great book if you haven't read it, I want to encourage you to do so, but he describes it like a car. Or he maybe says a boat. I couldn't remember this week which it was, but I think it's a car. And he says, your car is meant to run on gasoline. That's how the creator of your car created it. And so if you go to the gas station and you fill up your car with diesel, it's not going to run very well. In fact, I don't think it's going to run at all because your car was designed to run on gasoline. If you put Dr. Pepper in your car, the car's not going to run very well or for very long. Even if you grew up like I did in the 70s and 80s, if you put leaded gasoline in your unleaded car, it's not going to run very well for very long. C.S. Lewis says it like this, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed upon. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about faith. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. And so the center of that circle is our spiritual brokenness. And then if we move outside of our spiritual brokenness, we come to our psychological brokenness. We see in the beginning of the story, Adam and Eve eat the fruit they hide from God, and then it says they hid because Adam was afraid. Fear enters the story. It's a psychological reaction to sin. We sin because we don't know who God is, and so we don't know who we are. All of our psychological issues... Anxiety, fear, depression, anger, addiction, pride, mood swings, delusions, irritability, hypersexuality, indecisiveness, all of those things are a result of our spiritual alienation from God. And so we got spiritual alienation, we've got psychological alienation, and we move out to the next circle, it's social brokenness and social alienation. Adam and Eve, in the beginning of the story, it says they were naked and unashamed. I don't know what it means to be naked and unashamed exactly, but I think it's this idea of being pure, of being vulnerable completely with each other. And so here's how the story goes. Our wrecked relationship with God causes us to be mentally broken people. And because we're mentally broken people, then we try to break each other. Hurt people hurt people. You've probably heard that before. So again, C.S. Lewis says, imagine two cars or boats going down. Colonial, not boats on Colonial, might be these days, (laughs) They're going down the road, and they're side by side, right? And you're going, and one's a snowbird, and one's a resident, and, you know, it's going okay, and the car next to you begins to text and drive. And maybe you say, you know what? As long as I do what I'm supposed to do in my car, I'll be okay. They're texting and driving over here. Their concern now has become a concern of yours. Their psychological problem has now created a social problem. The internal problems of that car have become your problem and everyone else around it. And so that's why we have war. That's why we have crime. That's why we have divorce and poverty and oppression and racism. And if you move to the final circle, it's physical brokenness. Essentially, God says, since you decided to be your own master of the universe, then my creation is going to no longer be your friend. And so we're told that we labor and we work by the sweat of our brow, we hunger, we have sickness, we have disease, and at the end of our story, nature ultimately wins, and we lose as ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And so you've got spiritual and psychological and social and physical brokenness, and all of that is a result of sin. But as I said, the Bible is one big story, and Jesus is the hero of the story. And so he came repair all of that. He came to save all of that. Sometimes we think he only came to save our spiritual brokenness, which he did. He restored our relationship with God through the the cross completely. Sometimes we think it's just our physical brokenness, that he overcame death and gave us new life. He redeemed our ashes. But Jesus came to fix us, to save us in every way. And not just for some future eternity to come, but the new life is to begin as soon as we put our hope in Christ. We're going through the Gospel of Luke, and we come to chapter 6 in that Gospel, and it's called the Sermon on the Plain. It's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. Some people say it's the same. Some people, he just used the same sermon over and over and changed bits and pieces of it. I don't know. But in Luke, he calls it the Sermon on the Plain. And Jesus has begun to teach us now What new life looks like. Jesus to Christ. That's what we're looking at. Christ can also be the Messiah. Christ can be the king. And so as the king, our king is telling us what life in his new kingdom looks like. He's telling us how we can have peace, how we can have more joy, how we can have more love of neighbor, not in the future, but beginning right now. And so in Luke's gospel, there's three sections to the Sermon on the Plain, and we're going to do all three sections. The first is the Beatitudes, perhaps you've heard of before. Luke includes some woes as well, which we'll get to, and I've titled this series The Pitiful People. The next little section is talking about the love of our enemies, and I've called that the difficult people, and we'll get to that in a week or two. And then we're talking about, lastly, in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about not judging other people, which we'll talk about being the merciful people. Now, last week, I have to apologize. I threw a graphic together right before the service, and it had Marilyn Manson on it, and I was going to do The Beautiful People, and I was thinking about that song. I didn't realize all the trouble Marilyn Manson was in. I was trying to be provocative to begin with, but not that provocative. So, I apologize for the, uh, and I appreciate none of you complaining, so that's cool, except for a couple people made me aware, do you know what's happening with Marilyn Manson right now? Yikes. So we won't use that again. So let me give some context for the section of Scripture we're going through tonight. Jesus has just taken a retreat on this mountain with all of his disciples. Not the 12 disciples, but hundreds, maybe even thousands of disciples. And they have went up on this mountain to kind of get away. And to pray and to fellowship. That's what we do on retreats. And it says in Scripture that Jesus spent the night praying. It says he spent the entire night praying. And we're not told what he prays about. But my guess is he was praying to ask God who he wants God to make the apostles. And so he comes down from the mountain and he calls these 12 guys to be his apostles. I don't know if it's a schoolyard pick or how he goes through it, but he picks these 12 guys to be the apostles. And the apostles simply are official representatives of Jesus, they have special authority that nobody else in history has had. That's who the apostles are. And so he comes down from this mountain with the disciples. He's called the 12 apostles. There's crowds still surrounding Jesus, they're looking for a miracle, they want to hear his teaching. And so he takes that opportunity with his disciples to begin to teach what it looks like to begin new life right now. To begin having our lives transformed, not in the future, but right now. And so he says in verse 20 what the kingdom of God should look like. He says, looking at his disciples, he said, blessed, it's not blessed, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, this isn't the first time we've heard uh, Jesus talk about the poor. Remember back in Nazareth, he goes to the temple there, and he's reading the scrolls, and he reads the scroll of Isaiah that said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And remember we talked about that week that he was talking not just about the physically poor, but the spiritually poor, those who know we have nothing to offer Jesus. That is who the gospel is for. But here, though, Jesus is actually now talking about the physically poor, those who don't have any money, those who are broke, those who can't buy the grocery. And he says, you're blessed. Now, I've never seen an Instagram post where it's, I'm so broke, hashtag blessed. Or, can't pay the rent this month, hashtag blessed. But in this section of Scripture... And I often call this section the upside-down, backwards kingdom of God, but that's wrong because what Jesus is teaching is the right side up, the world is supposed to work. And in this teaching, he's saying in the kingdom of man, it's blessed to be rich, blessed to be on top, blessed to have power, blessed when things go your way. But in the kingdom of God, it's blessed to be poor because being poor draws you to God. Blessed to be in last place because Jesus lost to win. Blessed to let go of power. Blessed to be merciful. The Greek word for blessed is makarios, and and it's literally translated as, oh, you lucky person. Oh, you lucky person to be poor, he says. Verse 21 says, blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Here Jesus is reminding us of the fleetingness, the impermanence of our trials, that they're pointing us to look forward. Verse 22, he says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, when they reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Now, if you've been around church any time, this is pretty familiar text. It's the beautiful Beatitudes, and I think too often we think of these as some nice things Jesus said. You know, there's some, like, Zen-like poetry that sounds really cool, and we put it on our wall, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And so, again, if you've been around church, especially if you've been around refuge any time, and you've heard me teach, you've probably heard me say that, yes, yeah, suffering is a reminder that the world isn't as it's supposed to be, that it is broken. Or that suffering is a reminder to put our hope not in this world, but in Christ. Or how suffering, uh, the things we consider blessings, are sometimes the things that can pull us away from God. And you probably sit there and you go, amen, pastor. None of you guys say that, actually. Uh, You can say that. Amen, pastor. Preach it. Great sermon. But then the reality hits, and we suffer. Or we hunger. Or we deal with chronic pain. Or we deal with chronic poverty. Or we deal with hurt feelings. And we fall into psychological sin. And oftentimes, it's that sin of self-pity. Eugene Peterson, he's the one that did the message paraphrase of the Bible. Brilliant guy. But he said this recently before his death. He said, feeling sorry for yourself has been developed into an art form. The whining and the sniveling that wiser generations ridiculed with satire is given bestseller status among us. Self-pity. It's dangerous, it's deceitful, it's a heart-hardening sin that can choke your faith, that can drain your hope, certainly can kill your joy, can fuel your anger, and it can keep you from loving your neighbor. And on top of that, I call it a gateway drug because self-pity tends to lead to gossiping about that person who hurt me. Self-pity tends to eat in that third bag of Cheetos that night. Self-pity tends to lead to substance abuse pornography abuse, all the vices that we use to soothe our self-sympathy. Pity is good when it's empathy, when it's sympathy towards others, but when it turns inward, it robs us of God's blessings. Pity is the twin sister of pride. Or maybe it's the brother or the cousin or something, but it's related to pride. And so when you think of a prideful person, you think of someone who, what, boasts about their accomplishments. And so you think of somebody who's conceited or arrogant or smug or self-important. That's what John Piper says. He says, boasting is the response of pride to success. Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says, I deserve ad- admiration because I have achieved so much. Self pity says, I deserve admiration because I have suffered so much. Self pity disguises itself as humility, but it's truly nothing more than pride. My problems are so much worse than everyone's else's. That's conceit. I deserve respect because of how much I've suffered. That's arrogance. My problems are all I can think about, not your petty little issues. That's self-importance. By the way, we've entered the preaching portion of the sermon now. And like most weeks, when I come into this place, I'm preaching to myself. And this is a message I needed to hear. Ask my wife. I probably need to hear it often. And so if you're here tonight, I hope you get something too, but welcome to my therapy session. Now, I started with that terrible video of Puddles the Clown. And old Puddles there, he was on America's Got Talent, and he is making a living throwing pity parties on YouTube. And I didn't feel like writing my sermon Wednesday, and I spent way too long down that rabbit hole watching those videos. (laughs) But they're like hour-long pity parties. It's kind of entertaining for some reason. (laughs) But Have you ever thrown yourself a pity party, or maybe it's a party for one, and you sit there at that party, and you sulk, or maybe you invite other people to your pity party. You're that person. <laughs> Sometimes, I don't know, for me, it can be the most stupid thing. I was thinking to today of like kids playing sports. I have kids that play sports, and you know, when you're a kid, and you got to sit on the bench, and you're like, man, this is ridiculous. I'm better than that person, and you just sit there and sulk, and you have that pity party. And I think of us adults, we get stuck in traffic. Oh my goodness, it's so terrible. I'm gonna be 10 minutes late, just my luck, and we have a little pity party right there on I-75. This week, writing this very message about pity, in between the YouTube videos, I threw myself a pity party. Because it was a short week, I already had Monday off, and I was busy, and it was Wednesday, and it was sermon writing day, and the internet kept going down, probably because of the YouTube videos I was watching. But for some reason, our internet kept going down, and I'm throwing a pity party. And then this stupid puppy that we got for Christmas is running all over the house, peeing in the floor, jumping on everything, getting in the pool, making a mess. Worst dog ever. And so I'm just, poor me, poor me, poor me all day. Yesterday, Karen convinced me to go to Pilates. Anybody ever done that? I got things hurting that I didn't even know I had muscles at right now. And I didn't want to go to Pilates, and I did it because I love my wife, and she's asked me and asked me and asked me, and I'm like, all right, but I had a crap attitude the entire time, a big old pity party. Uh, You know, I had a mask on, and I was like sticking my tongue out the lady and everything else because I didn't want to be there, and she talked so much, and then one time I hear her say something about me being the Pillsbury Doughboy, and that was not cool (laughs) at all. And then I had a pity party all the way home about how out of shape I've gotten and all of that. It's so easy to throw pity parties. It can be the littlest thing. And then we break out the cake and the ice cream and we throw ourselves a big old pity party. But sometimes it's the harder stuff. And I don't know what everybody's going through here in the room and your hard stuff that you have to deal with in your life. For me, I've mentioned before, it's it's chronic pain. I have chronic back pain and multiple surgeries and that stuff. And I find myself often, how is this fair? Jesus, I am trying to serve you with my life. It'd sure be a heck of a lot easier if you'd get this knife stuck out of my back out. And there's some in the room right now, or some listening online, you're like, chronic pain. That's nothing. Try dealing with blank. And do you see the pride of self pity? Do you see the arrogance of self pity? Conspiracy theories. Left or right, I don't care what party you belong to, but conspiracy theories, you know they're a result of self-pity? It's like, oh, the world is rigged against me, the election was rigged, that's rigged, this is rigged. I'm going to believe some nonsense because it soothes my self-pity. Those of you in recovery, you fall off the wagon. It's often because of these pity party. This is ridiculous that I can't have one drink. I've been sober for two years. I deserve this. Why can't they go out to the bars? Why can't I go out and blow off some steam? See, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. But when we're poor, when we can't make ends meet, when we can't buy the latest whatever, we throw a pity party, or we use that pity to justify some bad financial decisions. Blessed are those who weep. We say, that's a load of horse crap. My life is destroyed. It will never be good again. Some of you for Valentine's, you call that pity party day. You're like, why the heck am I still single? Even though Paul speaks of the blessedness. Who I just said that. Blessings of singleness. Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you, when people exclude you, when people insult you. True story? Or do you go into self-pity? Blessed are those who are hungry. Anytime I start a diet, which is usually every Monday, it's one big pity party until lunchtime when I break that diet. That's why I'm the Pillsbury (laughs) Doughboy. Sidebar here, and I need to really be clear on this, it's okay to be sad. Okay, It's a healthy emotion. It's okay to feel heartbreak. That can help us honor something or somebody that we've lost. Jesus says that we are blessed when we mourn. That means we are blessed when we let our sadness out and we cry and we express that sadness and grief. Scripture even teaches it's okay to be angry at times when it's in the appropriate situation, when it's injustice or inequalities or when we see somebody hurt. It's okay to be angry and I also want to be clear, don't use what I'm saying tonight and what we're teaching tonight as an excuse not to love your neighbor who is hurting. You might be I'm not going to join their pity party, and so you don't help them. And we're going to talk about judging others in a few weeks, but it's not our job to do that. And so it's okay to be sad, it's okay to be angry, it's okay to have feelings. But what self-pity is, is it's the pride that's hidden behind the sadness. It's the arrogance behind the anger. It's the sulking behind the heartache. So the Bible has a lot of stories about people throwing pity parties. I could probably list nine or 10 right now. I had them. Um, I chose two that I want to share with you tonight. There's one in the Old Testament I'm going to share and one in the New Testament. The Old Testament one is Jonah. Everybody knows Jonah, right? The, the big fish swallows him. Here's, here's a synopsis real quick, dummy version of the story. He's commissioned by God to go warn Nineveh of God's judgment and he don't like the people in Nineveh in fact he hates them because they've not been good they've been bad and they haven't done anything to deserve God's grace and mercy and so there's no way God I'm not going to do that and so he gets on a ship and he heads the complete opposite way from Nineveh on the way somehow he gets off the ship he gets eaten by a big fish he lays there in the belly of the fish eventually a fish pukes him up on a beach somewhere and Jonah after all this decides it probably ought to obey God And then in Nineveh he goes and shares the message, and repentance breaks out, and the city that Jonah hates is saved. In verse uh, chapter four, verse one, it says it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. In verse three, it's the pity party anthem: "Kill me now." And so Jonah goes out the city, and he gets on this hill, and he throws a pity party, and he's sulking. And God comes along and he causes a plant to grow. And he gives him some shade. And finally, Jonah is hashtag blessed. But in the weird irony of the Bible, God then also causes a worm to kill that plant, some scorching east winds to blow in, the sun to beat down, and immediately Jonah is back to kill me now. See, for Jonah, life felt unfair. Nineveh didn't deserve the blessings that God was giving them. The shade plant, even the blessing that God gave Jonah, that shade plant, well, it didn't last very long, so that wasn't a very good blessing. So Jonah thought he deserved better. And so he turns angry, he turns bitter, and the story ends. It's a heartwarming story, I know. Self-pity can bring an abrupt end to our stories of joy. Self-pity can bring an abrupt end to our lives. Isolation happens with self-pity. Start to cut off our friends. Start to cut off our family. We cut them off physically. We cut them off emotionally. Come distance. Nobody understands my pain. Nobody understands what I'm dealing with. Pandemics made this even easier. Now we've got an excuse to isolate in our self-pity. See, when we suffer... I'm talking the hard stuff. When we get cancer, we lose someone we're loved. We're going to lose friends. And I put friends in quotations on purpose anyway because there are people who, who aren't really our friends that don't want to be a part of our suffering because being a part of our suffering means that, oh, I have to acknowledge that that could happen to me. And so we're going to lose relationships anyway in our suffering. And so that's why it's important to hang on to our real friends and our suffering, that we allow the pain and our struggles not to rob us of those relationships, but instead of throwing a pity party, we allow it to push us deeper into community. Pity also uh, yields some self-absorption. And when we are full of self-pity, it's pretty hard to think about other people. Self-pity becomes pretty consuming. You I mean, just ask somebody who's ever struggled with depression, By the way, that's not self-pity. It's a medical condition, but it amplifies self-pity in our lives. And so somebody going through depression will tell you that generally all they can think about is themselves and their situation, which makes it that much harder for them to get out of that situation. Because when all you think about is yourself, you don't do a lot of loving your neighbor, which is good treatment for self-pity. When all you think about is your problems, you don't have any energy left to help anyone else. When you feel superior because they haven't had to go through your deep waters, you're a hard person to be around. Self-examination, introspection, soul-searching, that's good stuff. Feeling sorry for yourself all the time, not so much. And I want to talk specifically to those in the room who are leaders, whether it's in the church or whether it's in your place of work or maybe you're simply the leader of your family. Leaders are especially prone to the self absorptive pity. So you will be criticized. It's what people do to leaders, right? You want to criticize the person that's up there. And the criticism might be right or it might be wrong, but we immediately take in that criticism and we turn it inward. We cry over being unrecognized for our worthiness and value. And we begin to retreat into ourselves. We begin to retreat into that echo chamber of our heart. And we start repeating to ourselves all the ways we've been wronged. and becomes the spiral. How dare they think that change I made was not a good idea. They haven't read the books I've read. They haven't spent months thinking about it. They haven't spent years trying to plan this out. I mean, these people show up on Saturday night for one hour, twice a month, and they want to tell me how to do my job. I'm not even paid to do this, 40 hours a week, and no one appreciates what I do. Complain, 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 anyone else. Again, I'm preaching to myself tonight. Let's do a New Testament story. John chapter 5, Jesus encounters this crippled man at a pool in Bethesda. And this man's been laying there for no telling how long. He's poor. He's hungry. He's crying in pain. He's hated by society. He is the epitome of blessed. For Jesus. And so Jesus walks up to him and he says to this man, do you want to get well? Now that seems like a pretty stupid, insensitive question, right? I mean, the man's like, uh, Jesus, I'm sitting here in my own urine i got sores all over my body. My family, my friends, they've abandoned me. No one knows pain like me. No one knows suffering like me. I should be applauded just for showing up today. And you have the nerve to ask me, do I want to get well? What Jesus is saying, though, to this man is have you considered what it means to get well? That if you get well, You're going to have to give up that self-pity. And the problem with that is self-pity is addicting. See, we can use that self-pity, right? We can use self-pity to just avoid life. We can use self-pity to avoid responsibility. We can use that self-pity to justify our poor behaviors. I'm doing this because of that. We can use self-pity to get attention. Simone... Vile, I think is how you pronounce her name. She was a French philosopher in the early 1900s. She called this effect being complicit with the affliction. She says, Suffering can little by little turn the soul into its accomplice. Suffering, little by little, can turn the soul into its accomplice. So after Jesus asked this man the question, he doesn't say, Yes, Jesus, I want to be well. It's not what he does. He says, excuses, I have no one to help me. Excuses, someone always jumps the line in front of me. Jesus didn't ask him any of that. He just said, do you want to be well? Verse uh, 8 says, then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. This man has a choice. Stay over here in self-pity or get up and walk. So long as we're victims, we got our excuse right there in our pocket. If there's anger. Well, you'd have fits of anger too, if you had my pain I've said that. For every problem with drinking, we say, "Oh, but if you knew my story, you would understand why I drink." People want to push responsibility on us. We're like, "I just can't. Don't you see this pool of misery that I'm laying in?" I can't come to church. I've got the worst kids ever. I can't serve that person. I've got a greater mess that I'm dealing with. And here's the really sick part about self-pity, or we can call it victim mentality. Some of us just don't want to get well. Because if our critics stop beating us up, we lose that feeling of superiority over those people. If my spouse finally meets my unrealistic expectations, then I might have to look in the mirror and see my own failings in the marriage. I've seen this before. A divorced parent will use their pain and suffering as a way to guilt their kids into behaving. They like having that self-pity in the pocket. And I'll see the kids learn from that, and they'll start to use their suffering to get their parents to buy them stuff, to get their parents to relax the rules. And both of those things are incredibly toxic. Self-pity is a soul-destroying, relationship-weakening, joy-stealing, life-sabotaging sin. It twists our reality, can lengthen our trials, it can exaggerate our suffering, it damages our testimony of Jesus, and it certainly doesn't do anything to glorify God. Feeling beat up yet? (laughs) have I done enough preaching. I'll tell you what, I'll leave you guys alone. I'll stop preaching at you. And I'll finish my sermon. I think we need to help out Puddles the Clown. This guy's having a pity party every day for an hour on YouTube. I think we ought to give him some advice that can really help him out. So he can start living his his best life now. Okay. So so puddles, puddles, man, it could be worse. At least you don't have it like those people. At least you don't have that person's problems. You probably see already it says that's bad advice. That's not really helpful. And it certainly lacks compassion. I heard that during Hurricane Irma. We were without power for like 12 or 13 days. And, man, I complained about it. All I heard back was first world problems. Yeah, I get it, those first world problems. But it still sucks. So saying someone can't be sad because somebody else has it worse is like saying you can't be happy because someone else has it better. That's just silliness. But I've tried this technique on myself. And it's worked to some degree. We were up to Disney water parks a few years ago, and I had one of those major back pain flare-ups where I couldn't walk and just really disappointed. I couldn't, you know, go on the slides with the kids. All I could really do is sit on a beach chair all day and watch everybody else playing and having fun and looking at my phone. And it it was a major pity party. I was feeling pretty sorry for myself. And I see this kid. He's in a wheelchair. He's paraplegic. And they have to load him into the pool using, you know, the little arm thing that loads handicapped people into the pool. And he can barely move and looks tough and all he can do is, when he gets in the pool, is his mom, struggling too, is just splash him with some water. And so I'm over here having a self-pity party about my poor back pains and this is what this kid's dealing with. And so in that moment, it woke me up from that self-pity party. And so tonight, as I was considering the sermon and the reason I went to YouTube in the first place, so I was going to find this video of somebody just had it really bad, you know, and, and I actually saw one. It was a guy, he didn't have any arms and he managed to pick up an axe and chop some wood. I'm like, boy, that'll guilt some people that are feeling sorry for themselves. Look at this guy and look what he's accomplishing. Your pity parties are ridiculous and maybe even you'd cry a little bit. I was trying to find a really, you know, good music and make you cry. But see, guilt never works. That's another story of the Bible. Guilt never changes behavior. Guilt never makes any lasting change in our lives. And so that phrase that someone has it worse, we say that to people when they're suffering. Man, that does a lot of damage because it can prevent them from being open and being honest and it can prevent them from seeking the help they need for their suffering. Sure, it could be worse, But that doesn't mean you need to suffer through depression in silence. Seek help. Seek medication. Sure, being addicted to heroin is worse than being addicted to beer or porn or food. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't seek help. Try to make change. See, we aren't being a good Christian when we soldier on or we push our feelings way, way deep and stuff them away. If we don't deal with the root of our pain, the emotional The physical, the spiritual roots of our pain, it will continue to rear its head over and over again. Can you tell I have a wife who is a therapist? So here's some things Puddles the Clown can do. This is some good advice. Puddle needs to face his feelings. That's what I was just saying. He needs to quit hiding from them. Every minute he spends hosting a pity party is 60 seconds that has delayed him from allowing Jesus to take that suffering and turn it into a blessing. Puddles needs to stop distracting himself by the unfairness of the situation. He needs to face whatever grief or disappointment or loneliness he's dealing with. Puddles needs to recognize that he's in a downward spiral. I mean, he's had this YouTube channel going on for way too long. That's a, that's a long-lasting pity party. Because we get in that downward spiral, it can get hard to get out of. When we focus on everything going wrong in our lives, then our thoughts become consumed by negativity. And as we begin to dwell more and more on negative thoughts, those negative thoughts start to affect our behavior. And as our behavior starts to behave negatively, it creates more pain, it creates more suffering, and it becomes an endless pity party loop. My life is ruined. It'll never be good again. That becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I was watching a basketball game right before I came here and it wasn't the outcome wasn't what I wanted. I threw a mini little pity party at the end of that. But I saw guys during the game and they're playing well and then they miss a shot and they'd hang their heads. They had a little pity party and then they started playing worse. Or something would go wrong here and, and they're getting behind and you just see their body language begin to change. And the more that body language changed, the worse they played in the game. It's an endless loop. And so to that end, I would challenge Puddles tonight to challenge his perceptions, to ask himself, well, what good things do I have in my life? Yeah, this is bad, but but what are the good things I have in my life? Is my luck really bad all the time? Is my entire life ruined, or am I missing life because I spend all my time at pity parties? So I want to include, I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're gonna finish with a time to respond to the message. But essentially, self-pity is thinking, I deserve better. That's what it is. Well, here's what Jesus says about having it better. Verse 24, he continues this little sermon, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. See, Jesus knows that we are psychologically broken because of sin. And because he knows this, he wants us to experience that freedom, that joy, that life now, not later. And so when we're rich... And it's easy to forget who our great comforter is in Christ Jesus. When we're well-fed, when we're laughing, it's easy to forget that there's a tragedy waiting right around the corner, and then when it comes, we allow it to destroy us. When people are constantly speaking well of us, we can start to think we're actually good people, that we're deserving of all the praise and the adoration, and then we begin to constantly seek more praise and adoration. Self-pity... Is turning our gaze inward. Jesus teaches life comes when we turn that gaze up. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And maybe that sounds to you like self pity, because it does at first glance, but here's what followed My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Thy will be done. Self pity is all about what we think we deserve and the only thing we've said this a hundred times in here the only thing we deserve, the only thing we're owed from God is death but God's love and God's grace and God's mercy isn't about how deserving we are, it's in spite of how undeserving we are the Bible says by his wounds we are healed, we're healed of pain, we're healed of suffering, we're healed of the spiritual brokenness, we're healed of the psychological brokenness, we're healed of the physical brokenness our ashes are redeemed, only beauty remains. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. You know what he's saying? He says, dear friends, don't throw yourself a pity party when bad stuff happens. Instead, be glad. Instead, see the blessing. For these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it's revealed to all the world. So I'm going to ask you to stand. We are going to have a time to respond just through song because life is hard and bad stuff, it just happens. And we do get a chance to respond. We can respond with self-pity laced with pride, or we can respond with sadness and anger that's still laced with hope. And so whatever our lot is, Jesus says, we're blessed.